Hello and welcome to Tales from the Campanile, a production of the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. In our inaugural season, From the Outside In, Women in Politics, we explore the long and embattled history of women who left their mark on the nation's political arena. Please join our host, Emmy Award-winning journalist, Belva Davis, for episode two, Cracking the Ceiling and Breaking the Mold. The roar of the 1920s reflected the rising political activism of women in America. Armed with the vote, their voices began to be heard from City Hall to Congress. Although Jeanette Rankin's tenure in Congress was cut short by the maneuvering of Montana's male legislators, her election broke down an important barrier and paved a new path of political possibility for women around the country. They too could now hold political office. Between 1920 and 1940, nearly two dozen women served in Congress. Countless more placed their names on ballots at the state and national level. As America plunged into the depths of the Great Depression in the 1930s, the change these women brought to politics significantly expanded the realm of equality for women, for the poor, for the communities of color. These women who entered the political system not only cracked the ceiling, they broke the mold. I became active in the International Labor Defense in a branch of it which met in my neighborhood and so I became very actively engaged in campaigning for other things that were going on at the time. And of course, the, here in California, there were, there were so many cases at one time that I think we had the greatest number of people in prison in California for left-wing activities yes. of any place in the country. Was yes, it was during the Depression party. when I began to wonder what it was all about, what was happening. I thought at first that I was simply one of those unlucky people that every time you had a few hundred dollars saved that... Uh, uh, something would happen, a catastrophe in the family, a broken leg or, or some illness of some kind or something, and it uh, would be gone. And I, and I thought, well, I just must be unlucky. And then I looked around me and I saw that everyone else had this same lack of luck. That was LaRue McCormick, a mother and housewife from Los Angeles. Like many women during the Depression, McCormick's concern for the poverty and unemployment that afflicted her household spurred her to action. A few years after that fateful visit, she found herself completely immersed in California's political world. She advocated for the rights and recognition of the state's poor and unemployed. By 1937, she served as the executive director of the International Labor Defense Organization. When the Democratic Party continued to prove unresponsive to change, she boldly switched her registration to the Communist Party and ran for office. I ran on the Communist Party's ticket. The decision that I should run was made uh, by the County Committee of Los Angeles mm -hmm. and, uh, of course, myself. At that time, uh, you needed someone who raised the issues a little bit better than the other candidates were raising them. No one was raising the question, you know, the disenfranchisement of these people. No one was raising some other questions. And so I went in there with the idea of sharpening up some of these things and of forcing some of the other liberal candidates to adopt a better program. In 1938, I became the candidate of the Communist Party in the 16th Congressional District, where 
the, the incumbent was uh, Leland Ford, a man who had been on the Board of Supervisors in Los Angeles. Now, Leland Ford was one of the most vitriolic, <laughs> outspoken reactionaries, uh, uh, public officials that we had at that time. I can remember one time that uh, they apologized to me because uh, Leland Ford uh, stuck out his tongue and, and made a, uh, an obscene gesture uh, when he saw me in the uh, supervisor's uh, room preparing to speak in behalf of the unemployed. This was at a time when they were trying to disenfranchise the some of the unemployed, uh, and Leland Ford was sort of the darling of the Los Angeles Times and of the open shop and represented all of those things that we, the, the ordinary people, were against. So I was very happy to become the uh, candidate of the Communist Party and to oppose Leland Ford. It was uh, essential in 1938 that the issues of that day, the jobs issue, the uh, all of the reforms promised by the Democratic Party be again brought up to the people and uh, they be fought for. Four years later, McCormick once again threw her hat into the political arena. She challenged an unopposed Jack Tenney for the California State Senate. I next ran for the office of State Senator against Jack Tenney on the Communist Party ticket. And this was because Tenney had become the ace red baiter in the state. So he was also registered as a Democrat and as a Republican so that he would get both nominations and have no opposition in sailing into the state Senate. He was endorsed, of course, by the Los Angeles Times and all kinds of reactionary organizations who were very delighted to have him as their representative in uh, Sacramento. Uh, Tenney was a member of the um, Musicians' Union and he had begun already to uh, take a completely anti-labor stand in legislation in Sacramento and was despised by the trade union movement and all liberals because of his red-baiting tactics. The following year, McCormick advocated for change at the local level. She placed her name on the ballot for the Los Angeles Board of Education. I again ran for office in 1940 three, which was uh, for the Board of Education in the Los Angeles District. And uh, here, of course, it was on a program to win the war and uh, against a very reactionary woman, Mrs. Ronsville, who had been on the board for a long time in Los Angeles. The main planks in my platform at that time was to arranged child care for the children of uh, women who were going into industries as a result of the war. Uh, Mrs. Roundsville, who was a very active PTA uh, leader, always maintained that um, if there were child care centers for children that uh, the mothers would be off to bars drinking or something and uh, would not be caring for their own children. And of course this represented such a backward uh, concept of uh, what had to be done in the face of the tremendous numbers of women who were having to leave their homes whether they liked it or not and go into industry, many of whom had uh, never worked before and who were now being absorbed in the shipyards and other, and other industries. We put forward a very realistic and sound program for care for the children and for um, wiping out the discrimination that existed in the school 
setup in the school board itself, uh, the uh, non-placement of minority teachers and the um, schools that even at that time, there were many that were segregated schools actually. McCormick always advocated for racial equality. The issues of discrimination and civil rights were at the forefront. In 1946, she spearheaded the successful effort to elect the first African-American to a school board in California. The following year, she ran again in Los Angeles to address racial tensions in school. And the school authorities simply refused to listen to community people or to or any of the organizations uh, or to the black people themselves about measures to be taken to, to uh, correct this situation. So we continued for a long time with delegations and with committees and worked with the parents and with uh, uh, as many of the people as we could reach before this uh, uh, situation settled down. The 1947 elections were uh, pretty hectic and <laughs> there were many people involved all over the city who hadn't been uh, involved in other years. Uh, I was running against uh, Mrs. Eleanor Allen, who was the darling of the Los Angeles Times. The Times very much feared any black person being a member of the board and uh, Dr. Claude Hudson, uh, long associated with the NAACP, and. Uh, uh, activities among the uh, black people in Los Angeles was a candidate and uh, a number of these other people who were uh, progressives. Uh, the Times was very fearful that there would be a uh, liberal coalition in the school board that might make some changes in the uh, the way that uh, our schools were operating and changes that were long overdue. While LaRue McCormick's electoral campaigns never resulted in a victory, they were successful in highlighting concerns of impoverished families and communities of color. Women such as Helen Douglas followed suit. Douglas needed no introduction to California voters when she ran for Congress in 1944. As a well-known actress and singer, her victory that November made her one of the first to make the transition from Hollywood to public office. After Douglas's election to Congress in 1944, Douglas continued to advance change from the inside. Like McCormick, the widespread poverty and unemployment of the Great Depression fueled Douglas's political activity. The issue of racial equality was also close to her heart. As she entered Congress, it was an issue she intended to advance within a divided Democratic Party. This spirit of inclusion began in her Washington office when she hired Juanita Terry, the first African-American secretary on Capitol Hill. She made such a record of herself, for herself, but today, I don't know how many black secretaries they have on the Hill. And oh. she was as good as anybody on the Hill. Tremendous. Some people asked me, how are you going to do it? And the press came. For, for a short time, we were besieged by the press. And, uh, yes. And they would come in and say, Mrs. Douglas, make a statement. I said, I have no statement to make. I have nothing to say whatsoever. They said, but you have a black secretary. I said, that's right. What's so extraordinary about that? And I made no statement. I refused to give any publicity to it whatsoever. 
I said, if it's right, why don't we make such a fuss about it? Just do it. Hiring the first African-American secretary put Douglas out of step with the march of Washington politics. So did her just-do-it attitude. Her conscience, rather than favors and fanfare, guided her political compass. I treated the issue of whether or not the blacks were really part of the Democratic Party in the state of California exactly the same way. So I'm not going to hand out any leaflets or any announcement that now we're going to do some extraordinary thing and we're going to invite all the minorities in with them. If it's right, you do it, and you don't have to advertise it. Just do it. Douglas continued to advocate for racial equality during her second term. She wanted the service of African-American soldiers in World War II to be publicly recognized. Many had hoped the war would bring about a double victory, one abroad against fascism and one at home against racial discrimination. However, upon returning, many black soldiers realized their valor overseas had done little to temper the racism on the home front. In this vein, Douglas once again broke with the political norm and published an account of their military service on behalf of America. The reason that I undertook that uh, was because it, it, it was during the war, we had reverses in Italy and uh, Congressman Rankin uh, took the floor one day and held forth on these reverses and blamed it on black soldiers who were among those fighting in, in Italy. I was so distressed by this, so distressed that this would then be repeated to these black soldiers, you know, when they came home and they'd get it overseas and all. Then I went down to my office at the end of the day and called the various services and said, would they please send me the record of the black soldier in the war and of the of past contributions. I knew fully well, went back to the Revolutionary War. And the word came back, they didn't have any such record. Nobody had any such record. Well, I said, what have you? What have you? And they said, the only thing that we have are the press clippings. But uh, when I asked for permission to address the House, I think it was now for two weeks at the end of the session each day, I read this whole pamphlet into the record. So it would be there for all time. And when the first day when I read it, Rankin wanted to get to his feet and answer me. And they, he was restrained by his friends who said, you can't, you can't. Helen isn't saying anything. This is what the services said. This is in the record. She's reading the record. This became, after the war then, or even before the war was over, when men began to return. And they'd be in the hospital, injured and miserable. And there was nothing to give the black soldier except this Negro pamphlet. And the military called me again and again and again and said, how many copies may we have of that? And we printed, oh, thousands of them. We did, out of my pocket. And then finally, I said to someone, I think it was the army, said, don't you really think now maybe you could do this yourself? And it is my understanding that this was the beginning of a continuous record of the history of black soldiers in our armed forces. Douglas's action made her a political target. In 1950, she faced off against Richard Nixon for California's open U.S. Senate seat. This campaign would become one of the most infamous in political history. Marred by red-baiting slurs, Douglas was presented as a communist sympathizer by Nixon and her opponents. She was piqued, they charged, all the way down to her underwear. 
what was new was the injection of communism to prove that certain people running for office were disloyal to the country. This was new. We weren't discussing the issues at the end. I mean, the people weren't discussing the issues. It was just that woman mustn't go to Congress because who knows what will happen to us if she goes, you know. I mean, that was the basis of the, of the campaign, and, and it worked. Nixon's smear campaign worked. Douglas suffered defeat, yet his tactics earned him the lasting nickname, Tricky Dick. During her three terms in Congress, Douglas bravely broke the mold. She significantly widened the path of opportunity for women who followed. Her actions were not about liberation as a woman, but simply taking her equal place in American politics. Well, I've never been a dithery woman. <laughs> no. <laughs> never occurred to me <laughs> because I was a woman. Uh, I was less qualified than, than some man would have been. LaRue McCormick and Helen Douglas were both born with that sense of independence and in their political activities sought to extend that same freedom and equality to others. They used the electoral process to advocate for change. As we'll see next time, their bold actions were matched by women at the community level. This has been a production of the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Narrated by Belva Davis, researched and written by Todd Holmes, produced and edited by Shanna Farrell and Christina Kim. Production assistance was provided by Julie Allen, Paul Burnett, David Dunham, Martin Meeker, and Lyndon Norton. And a special thank you to project advisor, David Boyer. All interview clips were drawn from the Oral History Center collections. I'm Martin Meeker, director of the Oral History Center. Thank you very much for listening.